Well, good morning, church. It is good to be together, amen? Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, and this morning we will consider verses 17 through 26. But before we do, let me ask you a question. What is the most life-changing truth that you know? This is a simple yet very powerful question. What is the most life-changing truth that you know? Let me ask it in a different way. The most powerful truth you claim to believe, has it changed your life? The most powerful truth you claim to believe, has it changed your life and how? In 1989, Dutch theologian and prime minister of the Netherlands, Abraham Kuyper, delivered a series of six lectures at Princeton University with the purpose of answering that very question. What truths have the greatest power to determine how we actually live? For Kuiper, the answer boils down to relationships. Relationships. Three relationships in particular. With God, with man, and with the rest of the world. In Kuiper's mind... How you relate to God, how you relate to man, and how you relate to the rest of the world, and how you answer those three will determine how you live your entire life each day. I believe Kuiper was correct. But beyond Kuiper, I am interested in knowing how you would speak to those three relationships to God, neighbor, and the world. Where do you stand with God? How do you relate with your neighbor, and what do you want for the rest of the world? I believe in the book of Acts, we see the Apostle Paul answering those three questions, not only in what he said verbally, but also in what he did practically, how he lived. His life was a testament to his deepest convictions. And for him, the answer to those three questions about God, man, and the world was one and the same. Can you guess it? One word or two. Christ. Christ Jesus. You can break it down like this. Paul was a man reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. Question number one. Paul was a man free to love others because of Christ Jesus, question number two. And Paul was a man zealous to reach the world for Christ Jesus, question number three. For Paul, Christ Jesus was not just a compartment of his life that he opened on Sunday mornings. For him, Christ was all of Life, how he related to God, to man, and to the rest of the world. Or as he said, for me to live is what? Christ. And when I say Christ, I mean not Christ only as an ideal, but as a historical person who died and was raised from the dead. As the hymn says very simply for Paul, life was worth the living. You know it? Just because, what? He lives. The death of Jesus without 
the resurrection of Jesus would be a nice gesture, but void of any power to save sinners. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Peter would have gone back to being a fisherman. Paul would have lived and died as a Pharisee, and there never would have been something called the church. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this meeting would not be happening, for we would all be lost in sin and darkness. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, literally, literally everything else you could be doing right now, you should be doing right now. Anything at all, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, playing video games on Sunday mornings would make more sense than being here. You would be wasting your time. In summary, and as 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this meeting is worthless worthless. But praise God that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Do you believe that? As the hymn says, he arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Therefore, everything has changed for Jesus is making, right now, he is making all things new, including yourself. Saul, the persecutor, is a case in point. I must remind you that when Paul was on his way to Damascus, he was doing so out of hatred for Jesus and for his followers. He wasn't about to change his mind about Jesus and about the disciples of Jesus. He wasn't about to change his mind. He was thirsty for murder. He was thirsty for punishment. He was a murderer. What happened? What happened to Saul? Jesus lives. That's what happened to Saul. It was the risen Jesus who took Saul, the persecutor, and made him Paul, the apostle. It was Jesus who transformed Paul from a man full of hatred into a man full of love. Why? Because Jesus not only died for Paul's sins, but what else? He rose from the dead. And this is precisely what we see in our passage. After a very long trip through the Mediterranean Sea, making several stops along the way, Paul and his companions, including Luke himself, the writer of the narrative, they all arrive at Jerusalem. The missionary journeys are over, and they are now in Jerusalem, and here's what happened next. Read with me, follow along as I read beginning in verse 17. When we, Paul, now Luke includes himself in the narrative, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. 
What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you, Paul. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as far as, far as the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Verse 26, then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Interesting passage, isn't it? Here's the first and only main point for this morning. We're rooting everything in the resurrection of Jesus because that is at the heart of of this unit all the way through the end of the book. And so here's the first or only point for this morning. Because he lives, we can count others. Can you guess the rest? More significant than ourselves. Because Jesus lives, we can count others more significant than ourselves. This passage has many details, many complicating factors. But this passage that we just read is first and foremost about love. And let me be clear, nothing, absolutely nothing in your life, nothing, no amount of theological knowledge, no amount of academic credentials, no amount of titles, no amount of books read, no amount of prayers, no amount of service in the church, no amount of tears or whatever else you can think of can take the place of love in the Christian life. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing can take the place of love in the lives of those who have been raised together with Christ through faith. By this the world will know that you are my disciples, that you come to church every Sunday, right? That you tithe, that's important. That you read books. Now by this the world will know that you are my disciples, said the Lord Jesus, that you love one another. Nothing is a greater witness to the world than love. And nothing is a greater hindrance to the witness of the church before the world than failing to love one another. And this passage is about love before it is about anything else. If you read this passage and miss love, you have missed the entire passage. Let's look at it a bit more closely and see why this is indeed the case. We begin in the encouraging reports. The encouraging reports. What is the report? God is building his church. God is building his church. Hearing reports of what God has done and is doing in the world is always an encouragement to those who love the Lord Jesus. Just this morning, uh, during the Sunday school hour, we were blessed with reports of God's work 
both locally, countrywide, and globally. If you missed Sunday school this morning, you should have been here. You would have been blessed. We were all blessed. One of the reasons Paul was so eager to make it to Jerusalem was precisely so that he could share with the people in Jerusalem the mighty acts of God among the Gentiles. Among the Gentiles. And we see this in verse 19. Paul, says the Bible, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, which is interesting given the nature of Paul's ministry. Given the nature of Paul's ministry. Plots to mistreat him at Iconium. Idolatrous worship and stoning at Lystra. A mission-threatening division in Jerusalem. Imprisonment in Philippi. Insults in Athens. Fear at Corinth. Dark magic, satanic opposition, and riots in Ephesus. You know what those things are? All those challenges. Those are the gates of hell seeking to keep the gospel from making progress into all the world. But what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? I will do what? Build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If death invade, in vain forbade Jesus rise, hell in vain forbade him advance. Therefore, Paul never lost sight of this one truth. Whatever good happens in the ministry, it is always the work of God and God alone. Yes, it is through us. No question about that. We must be obedient. We must do the work of the ministry, but the work is ultimately God's and God's alone. Nothing happens apart from his power to save. But not only was the church being built around the world, but we also read that it was being built in Jerusalem itself. After hearing Paul's report, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus and the main leader in the Jerusalem church, along with the elders there, give Paul this report in verse 20. In verse 20, you see they say to Paul, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have what? Believed. Believed in the gospel. Neither Peter's nor Paul's ministry were in vain in Jerusalem. Thousands of Jews had come to faith in Christ through the ministry of Peter and James and Paul, even with all their persecutions and all their sufferings. Remember that Peter, who mostly ministered among the Jews in Jerusalem, had himself being thrown in jail, questioned by the leaders of Jerusalem, and almost killed at the hands of Herod. However, Peter likely, or moreover, Peter also likely witnessed the stoning of Stephen, and he also went through the loss of the other James, the brother of John, who was, remember, he was beheaded by Herod. But like Paul's, Peter's ministry was not in vain. Why? Why was it not in vain? What is the ultimate answer of any success in ministry, any progress of the church? It's because Jesus lives. It's because Jesus lives. 
That is Paul's conclusion at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. You and I can persevere in Christian ministry because Jesus lives. Therefore, our labor is never, never, never in vain. Never in vain. The church was growing everywhere, including Jerusalem. So to these encouraging reports, there is next a joyful response. A joyful response. What was the response? To God alone be the glory. To God alone be the glory. They glorified God for the progress of the gospel both in Jerusalem and among the Gentiles. I just want to point out the following. This joyful response coming from both Paul and James and the elders of Jerusalem means that James and Paul were in agreement regarding the gospel of grace. It is somewhat common for Paul and James to be seen as mutually contradictory. Do you remember that Luther, Martin Luther, he didn't like the epistle of James because for him it didn't sound like a, a, an epistle, a book of grace. So they're always thought to be against each other as if Paul taught grace and James taught works. But that's not true. They were both ministers of grace. The difference between them was their context. Paul's context was mostly Gentile, while James's context almost exclusively Jewish, in particular to those who were dispersed all over the world. So there were contextual differences in their ministries, but their message was one and the same. As far as I know, James did not disagree with Peter's conclusion during the Jerusalem Council when Peter said that we will be saved through grace or through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Moreover, their mutual celebration of the work of God among both Jews and Gentiles confirms that they were in agreement. Salvation is by grace, not by works. But even in the midst of all this joyful celebration, what we see next was a serious concern. A serious concern. What was the concern? Slander against Paul. Slander against Paul. This is already anticipating the main charge that is going to be brought against Paul in chapter 21, verse 28. Now, what was the heart of the Jewish slander against the apostle Paul? It was that he was an apostate. That he, though a Jew, had walked away from Moses and his law. We see this in verses 20 and 21. According to some Jews, Paul was teaching everyone to forsake Moses, to forsake the law. It doesn't get any more serious than that. Let me try to unravel some of the complexities in this passage. Paul was not an enemy of Moses. In fact, the Christian claim is that Paul was a true spirit-inspired interpreter of Moses because Paul saw Christ Jesus as the key to everything that Moses ever said or taught. In this sense, 
Paul and Jesus are on the exact same page. Jesus said that the entire Old Testament, including Moses himself, was about himself, about Jesus. Paul said the same thing. Paul and Moses were brothers in Christ. Paul and Moses were brothers in Christ. One lived before the coming of Christ. The other lived after the coming of Christ. So take, for instance, this question. Why did Moses choose not to enjoy the treasures of Egypt, according to the Bible? Well, according to the book of Hebrews, Moses chose not to enjoy the treasures of Egypt Because for him, the reproach of Christ was greater than wealth, according to Hebrews 11.26. You see, Moses was looking to the future, the future Messiah. Paul was looking to the past, the one who had already come, died, and raised again. Moses in the Old Testament and Paul in the New both met in the middle, beneath the cross, where their sins were forgiven, and they met outside of the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus. So absolutely not. Paul was not an enemy of Moses. They were intimate friends in Christ Jesus. So James and the elders in Jerusalem asked the following question. In light of this concern regarding Paul that he's an enemy of Moses, what is to be done? What do we do, Paul? The very question reveals something very important. It reveals that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem knew that these charges were true or false. False. What do we do about it? We know that this is false. What do we do? Now, Paul did teach that circumcision does not save. The Jerusalem council made that very clear in Acts 15. Salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, period. There is nothing else to be added. It is all by faith. Circumcision does not save. But what Paul did not do was to shame those who were still trapped in the idea that circumcision had something to do with salvation and were confused about it. Notice that these Jews in Jerusalem were believers. As James says in verse 20, they were believers. But they were still zealous for the law, meaning they were not yet able to live in gospel freedom. Notice also that this conversation was not about the moral law of God. Neither Paul nor James denied the importance of obedience to the moral law. After all, all Christians whether Jews or Gentiles, are still bound to obey the laws that says you shall not lie, you shall not commit murder, commit adultery, etc., etc. Does grace give any Christian the freedom to partake in sin? Absolutely not. God forbid. The issue between Paul and James was about Jewish custom, not about the moral law, as verse 21 makes very, very clear. John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, says that Paul and James were in full agreement doctrinally. They they both agreed that salvation is by grace alone. And they were in full agreement ethically. The moral law is still binding upon believers. 
The issue was not about salvation primarily, but about discipleship. How to establish unity among Jews and Gentiles. And that, by the way, is to a great extent the point of the book of Romans, especially chapters 9 through 11. There is, in fact, a great, a very strong connection between Acts and Romans, but we'll dive into that some other time. So in view of this serious concern that Paul is teaching against Moses, what is the proper solution? What is the proper solution? One word. Love. Love. Let me give you a summary of James' request to Paul. What does James ask of Paul? Here's a summary in my own words. Paul, Paul, can you humble yourself for the sake of the Jews and act like a Jew? That's the essence of his request. Paul, can you humble yourself before the Jews for the sake of the Jews and act like a Jew? Can you count others, Paul? Paul, can you count others? more significant than yourself. That's the point. Paul says, yes, I can. Now, this is tricky. If the late pastor James Montgomery Boyce, how many of you have heard of the name? James Montgomery Boyce. If he were here listening to this sermon, not that he would, But if he were here listening to my voice, he would be greatly disappointed in me. Greatly disappointed in me. His conclusion regarding this passage is actually opposite to mine. James Montgomery Boyce, whom I greatly respect, and I say this very, very humbly, he believed Paul is here both disobeying the Spirit's direction and compromising the gospel. Well, I believe Paul is here acting out of love. Let me interact with Boyce for just a little bit to show you why I reached a different conclusion. First of all, it seemed quite strange to me that Boyce, in his commentary, would conclude that Paul was here disobeying the Spirit. Very strange conclusion for me. In chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says clearly that he is going to Jerusalem. Why? He is constrained by the Spirit. Meaning, Paul had no choice but to go to Jerusalem. He had no choice in the matter. He was bound. He was under obligation to go to Jerusalem, not because he loved suffering, but because the Spirit was leading him to Jerusalem. This is crystal clear. So no, I don't think Paul was being disobedient to the Spirit. Second, I don't think Paul is here compromising the gospel. Instead, I think Paul is using his freedom in Christ in order to reach his fellow Jews for Christ. For Christ. Remember what I said at the beginning. Christ changed everything for Paul. Christ changed everything for Paul. Paul was a man free in Christ, 
therefore, to put himself under a ceremonial law for a short time was worth it in order to show true love. Paul is showing us what counting others more significant than ourselves looks like. I know this for two reasons. If you're following the notes, you can fill in the blanks here. I know this for two reasons. First, Paul's theology of purification. Paul's theology of purification. What did Paul believe about purification? Jesus accomplished it. Jesus accomplished it. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul said that Jesus gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, which is also expressed in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, where we read that Christ's blood purifies our conscience. What's the point? The death of Jesus is a purifying death. It cleanses us from sin. Paul did not need any more purification. No temple or ritual could offer Paul a greater purification than the one offered him by the death of Jesus for his sins. As we can say together through the song, Jesus has washed us with his blood. But what about 1 John chapter 3, verse 3? What about that text? Everyone who thus hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. That passage is not about ceremonial purification, but about the mortification of remaining sin within us. And even this is to be done by faith in Jesus and the power of the Spirit. We don't need a temple to be purified. In fact, in Christ and by the Holy Spirit, we are the temple of the living God. The sacrifice has been offered in our place. The lamb has died. Our sins have been forgiven. Jesus will come back again for he lives eternally. But as we wait for his return, we engage in this battle against sin. We purify ourselves. We mortify sin within us. As Paul said it, we put to death what is earthly in us. So the Christian purification is the quest for godliness through faith in Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Now the need for purification was symbolized in Old Testament Judaism in several ways, including the Nazarite vow, which, is, which involved cutting one's hair, abstaining from wine, and after the appointed period, burning the hair at the altar in the temple. All this was meant to show oneself fully devoted and pure to God. That was the point of the vow. Now, the specific instructions were given in Numbers chapter 6. This vow also involved bringing an offering to the sacrifice, to be sacrificed at the conclusion of the period. But this begs the question, doesn't it? If Paul was already purified in Christ Jesus because of his blood, why did he go along with the request? The answer is in Paul's theology of law. Paul's theology of law. What did Paul think about the law? It is about love. 
It is about love. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And you will see this very, very clearly. For Paul, the bottom line of everything we do as Christians is love. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and let us read verses 19 and 20. Listen to Paul's love in words. Okay, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Listen to what he said. For though I am free from all, was, was Paul a, a, a free man in Christ? Yes. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a what? A servant to how many? To all that I, may, that I might win more of them. Ah, we're beginning to see here Paul's motivation for everything he did. Verse 20. To the Jew, I became as a Jew. In order to do what? To win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law, and so on and so forth. That's the pattern. What Paul said here in words, he said in Acts chapter 20, verse 26, through actions. Through actions. Paul was a true theologian because he practiced what he preached. In Christ, Paul was a man free to love others to the utmost degree. As one commentator said, quote, listen to this, a truly free spirit in Christ as Paul's is not in bondage to its own freedom. A truly free spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to its own freedom. In other words, Paul was a slave to Christ, but he was not a slave to his own freedoms in Christ. He used his freedoms in Christ to reach others instead of asserting his own rights. In this instance, he became as a Jew or as one under the ceremonial law in order to clear the way for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without ever compromising his doctrine, Paul showed amazing compassion for his fellow Jews, even though he knew many of them hated him. So he submitted himself to Jewish custom to show sympathy. Unfortunately, the Jews will accuse Paul anyway, and we'll see that in the next section, either, even after showing such great conciliatory effort. As we can see here, through Paul's own example, love is patient, love is kind. Both Paul and James allowed for different levels of doctrinal and spiritual maturity within the body of Christ. Some in the body of Christ are well advanced in their knowledge of Jesus and grace. Others are barely getting started. Some are quite clear in their beliefs, 
Others are still dealing with great amounts of confusion. Some are able to be free in Christ. Others are still entangled in all patterns and beliefs. But for Paul, love is what? Is the fulfilling of what? Of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. This is literally what he said in Romans chapter 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What law? The law of Christ, which is the law of love. Remember what I said at the beginning? Nothing in your life, nothing in your life can take the place of love. Paul gladly placed himself under a ceremonial law for a short time in order to fulfill the greater law, the law of love. Paul was a man eager to love so that others might see Christ in him. Do you want to show your doctrinal and spiritual maturity? Then love is the only way to do so. You can quote Calvin all day. You can memorize the institutes of the Christian religion. But if you don't love, it means nothing. Literally, nothing. This is the central lesson of the Bible. It's all about love. Nothing else matters. Quite obviously, there's much to gather from this passage, but for the purpose of application... And I've alluded to some of that already, but I want to focus on one specific thing which I believe fits the overall bent of the book of Acts very, very well. I offer this for you for further consideration. And this is the recurring theme, the recurring theme. We see something happen over and over again in the ministry of Paul. What is it that always happened? He was maligned for the sake of truth and love maligned for the sake of truth and love. If we learn anything from the Apostle Paul is this. He was often, often misunderstood, misrepresented, and even slandered by his opponents. How many of you enjoy being slandered and maligned? Don't raise your hand because you will be lying. No one enjoys it. But Paul often was. He had enemies almost everywhere he went. And all because he spoke truth in love. In Acts chapter 21 through 28, the heart of the slander against Paul will be regarding Paul's teaching on the resurrection of the dead. He will continue to be cataloged as an enemy of Moses and by default as an enemy of the Jewish nation. But we learn this for, from Paul. For Paul, the truth of the resurrection was worth the mess he got himself into all the time. Indeed, for Paul, the truth of the resurrection was worth everything, even his reputation, his comfort, even his life. Not only because he believed in the resurrection of Jesus, 
but also because he himself was a new man in Christ Jesus. Paul was made alive together with Christ, just like we have according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We are a resurrected people. We have new life. We are new creations in Christ. Are we not? We are new creations in Christ. We are resurrected people. We have been raised. Not only have we died together with Christ, but we have been raised together with Christ. That is an indicative of the gospel. In view of that, let me ask you this. All of us, we need to ask ourselves this question. Are we willing to be maligned for the sake of truth and love? Maligned? Yes. Defamed, falsely accused, slandered. Maybe not because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, strictly speaking, but take about, take, think about, or take for instance, the issue of love. Love. We believe in true love. We can be maligned by those who think love equals tolerance of sin. Love equals tolerance of sin. Isn't that the world's definition of love? Isn't that how the world defines love? Love equals live and let live. But that is actually antithetical to the biblical concept of love. God so loved the world that he didn't simply tolerate the world's sin and welcomed everyone without doing anything about it. Rather, for God so loved the world that he condemned sin and punished sin upon the shoulders of his own dear son. God's love for sinners is a sin-destroying love that has no tolerance for it. So intolerant is God's love for, for us that he kept his son Jesus hanging on that cross without relief and without any escape until his life left him completely, until justice had been fully satisfied. In fact, to go along with the narrative that paints love as tolerance of evil and sin is to make a mockery of the cross upon which the Lord Jesus died for our sins. We can't go along with that narrative. But the world thinks of that love that I just described to you as hatred and bigotry, a strange oddity. So the question we must wrestle with is, are we willing as Christians, as the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth, to be called names and bigots and hateful and strange for the sake of true love? Are we willing to be maligned so that the truth of the gospel may be vindicated and our love for people prove to be pure and true? Paul spoke to the heart of Jewish sensitivities and he did so at great personal risk. Why? Because he was a new man. Because Jesus lives. And so did he. So here's our conclusion. Here's our conclusion. If or since Jesus rose from the dead. 
than loving our neighbor with the truth. Even at great cost is not only possible, but the inescapable fruit of Christ's power at work in us. Paul was not an exceptional Christian. He was an example we can actually follow for the very same power that changed him is changing us, namely the power of the risen Christ by the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, because Jesus lives, let us love one another. Let us count others more significant than ourselves, whatever the cost. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this lesson from the Apostle Paul. I pray that now the Spirit will do what only he can do, and take the truth and plant it deep within us. Use your truth to mold us, to change us, to make us more like the Lord Jesus, so that the world may see that he is indeed alive. And we ask these things in the precious, the matchless, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.